Chapter Eleven of The Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Eleven. Emma Hamilton. From the Duke, it is natural to pass to our greatest sailor. He himself, to be sure, has little part in London. For our memories, his place is on the sea, almost wholly. Away from the sea, he bore no such part in our life as Wellington bore nor could he have borne it had he lived after Trafalgar. For our national purpose, so to say, he had his great intellectual gift of consummate seamanship, his great moral gift of devotion to his country, but he can never stand for such a rounded type of Englishman as stands the Duke. The men had one thing in common, that both were quickly emotional, but Wellington was the lord of his emotion, and Nelson was the slave of his. The only occasion of their meeting, when Nelson exposed the childlike boastfulness which was a weak, if amiable, side of him to the Duke's grim observation, is sad to think on, but not surprising. The greatest of our sailors could never have played a great part in the broad world of affairs. For us his place is on the sea, and if his spirit might be supposed to seek the land, it would hardly seek Piccadilly. It would go, of course, to that peaceful Merton where he longed to rest. But with his Emma it is otherwise. The bustle of Piccadilly may well be imagined congenial to her. Of her life in England, after all, this was the most active and interesting part, so far as social things went, and Emma loved social things. Here, too, she gave birth to Horatia. I think she must be supposed to visit Piccadilly. I don't think the traffic would prevent her at all. And so I write of her and writing of her I must perforce write of Nelson. I really cannot admit that there is any reasonable doubt of Emma Hamilton's character. Men have sometimes written of her as though she were a problem like Mary Queen of Scots, of whom also, by the way, I have quite a definite view. Mr. Walter Sitchell, for example, to whose copiously informed book I am greatly indebted, writes with a fine air of defending a much-wronged woman, he seems to tilt lance in rest in her defence, like some champion of legendary chivalry. I admire the attitude, but I cannot induce my old bones to adopt it. I remember, with no disrespect to Mr. Sitchell, what Thackeray said, in another connection, of the defence of Nell Gwynne, made by her footman, that, after all, the jade was indefensible, and it is pretty certain her servant knew it. Not that Emma was a courtesan or anything like it, she was the mistress of two men in her youth, and after her marriage became the mistress of another. Poverty in the early cases, passion in the other, may or may not be held a sufficient excuse. For my part, I do not care. I am far from agreeing with Dr. Johnson, who assured the chivalrous bozzy, pleading extenuating circumstances for some other lady, The woman's a so-and-so, and there's an end of it. There is not an end of it. It is a narrow view, an unprofitable exaggeration of a part into the whole. Still, one can hardly say that on her record Emma is one's idea of a fine character. Putting common frailty aside, one does not find in her any clearly noble qualities of heart or head. She was a warm, generous, kindly creature, loving to have dependents, but loving also to cherish them, loyal, courageous. She was clever and appreciative, but, 
the gods be praised, there are hundreds of thousands such women, whose conduct is defensible as well. On the other hand, she was vain and vainglorious, a little intoxicated with her power as the wife of an ambassador, the friend of a queen, though it was but the queen of Naples, and the love of a hero. It was a strange fate that turned a serving-wench into all this, but happily for the colour of life in all ages, such fates have waited from time to time on beauty with no very wonderful qualities to aid it. Such as she was, you must imagine her at the beginning of 1801, soon after her return from Naples, setting up house with her husband at what was then 23 Piccadilly, a small house between the Saville Club and Down Street. You imagine her, of course, a very beautiful woman. How many portraits of her have you seen? A host by Romney, no doubt. To my mind, the most sympathetic of these are those he did of her in youth, and in a simple mood. There is a reproduction in Mr. Sitchell's book, of a sepia study done in 1784, which shows one a girl of compelling loveliness and grace. I could have fallen in love with her, as she sat for it more easily than with Sir Joshua's Bacchante, though that perhaps is the most beautiful picture of her we have. In 1801 she was thirty-six, a very beautiful woman still, but started on the road to corpulence, that sad journey so many beautiful women must take. Second-rate painters often give good likenesses, and I dare say Masquerier's portrait of her at this time shows her much as she was, with large eyes and fine features, and a mass of hair grown darker since her youth, rather heavy withal, and with something of a Jewish look about her. Graceful she remained, almost perfectly so, I do not doubt. You imagine her bustling about her new abode, arranging the furniture she had sold jewels to buy. In comparative wealth or in poverty, Emma was always hard up, and singing as she worked and directed. Sir William, her husband, smiles approval, and both expect with eagerness the coming of the hero, who has a lodging nearby in St. James's Street. It is not polite altogether to ignore this lady's husband. He is a little in the background, to be sure, sitting there rather pathetically, planning how to get himself rewarded for his services to his country, interested in art, enthusiastically admiring his beautiful wife and her heroic lover. They, in turn, respected and liked him. I do not think there is any obligation upon us to go about to inquire precisely how much Sir William Hamilton knew. I confess that to me it seems a thing almost incredible, in all the circumstances, that he did not know everything a thing quite incredible that he did not know much. He acquiesced in much, and for this acquiescence you are at liberty if you choose to find many hard words. But, unless you take your knowledge or ignorance of life from novels and plays, you cannot think it monstrous or unique. He was an old man, with a fatherly love for the beautiful woman he had so generously, perhaps so foolishly, married, with an affectionate admiration for her lover. I am not seeking to excuse, but merely to suggest to you how he may be explained, without any positive necessity for execrating him. Poor Sir William Hamilton. He is a figure of immemorial comedy, of course, a pathetic figure, not altogether unlovable. Only for a short time was Nelson able to frequent 23 Piccadilly. Soon he had hoisted his flag for the expedition which was to end at Copenhagen, but there was no lack of visitors there. Queen Charlotte naturally refused to receive Lady Hamilton, 
and she was not in society, as the respectably exclusive understood it. But there were many distinguished people who did not consider her interesting career a bar to acquaintance. Old Q, for example, did not mind it in the least. She was a great favourite with that ancient voluptuary, and was not omitted from his famous will. Those accomplished cousins, Lady Diana Beauclerc and Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, had for her that admiration which women, so often maligned in this regard, are wont to have for the beautiful of their sex, when they themselves have wit as well as looks. Various other fashionable but less important ladies came to her. Walter Savage Landor came and wrote verses about her. Mrs. Billington came, a pretty creature whose society unhappily could not increase Emma's respectability. Crowds of refugee Italians, crowds of humble relations were delighted to come. George, Prince of Wales, wished to come, but there was a terrible fuss about that, which we will attend to in a minute, and he came not. Greville, Sir William's nephew and her old protector, came, with cynical thoughts, it may be, but, I am convinced, quite good-naturedly. It is the custom of Lady Hamilton's champions to say harsh things of Greville, but I think their zeal outruns their judgment. Even the professed morality of his day would hardly have condemned his relation with Emma Hart or Lyon, when the friendless girl, cast out by another man, threw herself at his head with her, "'What shall I do? Good God, what shall I do?' He treated her kindly, and educated her attentively, if with incomplete success. It is really absurd to suppose that, by any standard of conduct known to him, we have much better standards now, he ought to have married her, or that he ought to have welcomed her as an aunt with reverence joy. They remained friends, and that should be enough for the champions. All these people Emma Hamilton entertained with her impulsive kindness and her great powers of amusement. She struck her famous attitudes for them, and she danced the tarantella. Raxall gives us a vivid account of this treat. It happened on the evening of the day that the news of Copenhagen came, the 15th of April, 1801. He looked in at 23 Piccadilly about 10 o'clock, and found Old Q there, and the Duke of Gordon, Cologne, the Duke de Noia from Naples, John Kemble and his wife, Greville, and Nelson's brother, the parson. An interesting company. Emma, radiant with victory, sang to the harpsichord, and danced the tarantella, and it is pleasant to note that what apparently impressed Raxall even more than the lady's grace was the agility of her veteran husband. Sir William began it with her, and maintained the conflict, for such it might well be esteemed, for some minutes, when, unable longer to continue it, the Duke de Noia succeeded to his place, but he too, though near forty years younger than Sir William, soon gave in. Lady Hamilton then sent for her own maid-servant, who, being likewise exhausted after a short time, another female attendant, a copt, perfectly black, whom Lord Nelson had presented to her on his return from Egypt, relieved her companion. It would be difficult to convey any idea of this dance, but the fandango and cigadilla of the Spaniards present an image of it. We must recollect that the two performers are supposed to be a satyr and a nymph, or rather a fawn and a bacchant. It was certainly not of a nature to be performed except before a select company, as the screams, attitudes, starts, and embraces with which it was intermingled gave it a peculiar character. I only mentioned it, I forgive him freely, in order to show Sir William Hamilton's activity and gaiety at that advanced period of life. Such doings at the little house in Piccadilly! 
But life then was not all singing and dancing for Emma Hamilton. On January the 29th she had given birth to Horatia, and a fortnight later she was playing hostess as though nothing had happened. Not three months later, as we have seen, she was wearing down four successive partners in the Tarantella. Wonderful pluck and a wonderful constitution, truly, and if they alone made character, one would join with the most fervid of her eulogists. Nelson's correspondence with her about this event is surely as curious as any letters ever hero penned. They arranged an elaborate system of deceit, could it really have deceived, according to which Nelson had an anxious officer called Thompson, whose wife, befriended by Emma, was expecting her confinement. Letters come addressed to Mrs. Thompson, and the expedient is further used in his avowed letters to her by frequent mention of the Thompsons. I believe dear Mrs. Thompson's friend, when Horatia had been born, will go mad with joy. He cries, prays, and performs all tricks, yet dares not show all or any of his feelings. But he has only me to consult with. He swears he will drink your health in a bumper. He does nothing but rave about you and her. So he wrote to her whom he thought, as a later letter has it, his wife in the eye of God. The dried bones of a passion are always sad to see, but a dead passion which was debased by deceit and subterfuge is pitiable. And this passion was debased by something worse than deceit. It is worth while, since we are on the subject, that our idea of Nelson and Lady Hamilton should correspond to the truth, and the truth was not, as one would suppose from sentimental reflections, that their passion, apart from its unhappy conflict with convention and customary standards, was an ennobling and ideal one. Take the most tolerant view, which is the wisest as a rule, and suppose that what is finest in the relation between a man and a woman may coexist with that which in the eye of the world is wrong. Those of us who will admit this probably know of cases where they are certain of it. Yes, but the least this assumes is that the man and the woman are sure of one another. Can it possibly be an ideal and ennobling passion when the man is racked with fear of the woman's unfaithfulness? The Prince of Wales intimated his wish to dine with Sir William and Lady Hamilton. It was obviously difficult to refuse, and Sir William, moreover, wanted the Prince's aid in getting a pension. When Nelson heard of the project he was beside himself with rage and anxiety, and wrote letter after letter of hysterical protest. He assumes that the Prince's intention was to make Lady Hamilton his mistress, and for that assumption there was, unfortunately, only too much reason. But his letters, further, mean nothing if he was not afraid that she would consent. Do not sit long at table. Good God, he will be next to you, and telling you soft things. His words are so charming that, I am told, no person can resist them. Hush, hush, my poor heart, keep in my breast, be calm. Emma is true. But no one, not even Emma, could resist the serpent's tongue. Did you sit alone with the villain? No, I will not believe it. Do not let the rascal in. And so forth. A medley of entreaty and fear, and protestations of faith, which truly protest too much. One hardly knows whether to laugh or cry. Here was a great hero, writing to the woman who was the love of his life, and he fears, lest the attractions of a licensed debauchee, a star-coated rapscallion, as Squire Beltham has it, should be too much for her. 
that it was not safe for her to sit next him at dinner. Alas, one can only suppose that there was little heroic in the woman to whom he wrote. His fear may have been baseless, she had to appease it by giving up the dinner, but that he had it tells us too much for any but a confirmed sentimentalist to go on rhapsodising about their passion. I like the woman, but there is an old tag about liking and truth. Yet Nelson's love for Emma Hamilton, ennobling or otherwise, was the thing nearest to his heart, and no view of her character can acquit the English government, or the nation in so far as it knew and made no protest, of the blackest ingratitude and treachery to Nelson in leaving her to starve. I trust if I have seemed cold about her, my sincere warmth in this regard may partly excuse me to the sentimentalists. The stupid, ghastly irony of it. Remember that I leave Lady Hamilton and my daughter to my country. Those were almost his last words. He had lived for his country, and he had died for it. His country loudly acclaimed that he had saved it. And his country made his brother, who had saved no one unless in his calling as a clergyman, an earl, and gave him a hundred and twenty thousand pounds. And his country entirely ignored the necessities of the woman and child he had left to its care. By the time they were actually in want, it was thinking of other matters, to be sure. Yet, with all her faults, Emma Hamilton had not done the country ill service. She might have hindered Nelson from his devotion to it, but she ever added fuel to that fire. The country might have remembered her, but it was content with that magnificent piece of irrelevance in regard to Nelson's brother. Besides, when a strict regard for morality positively pays, I suppose it is ingenuous to be surprised. The black days were yet distant when Merton Place was bought, and Piccadilly ceased to be Lady Hamilton's constant abode. Sir William kept on the house, it is true, and she was there sometimes. She lived just out of Piccadilly, in Clarges Street, for some years later on. Keeping strictly to my theme and its limitations, however, I confine her association with Piccadilly to that eventful year of 1801, when Copenhagen was fought, and Horatia was born, and she danced the Tarantella to Old Q and the Kembles. We take leave of her at the end of it, the gay, generous, clever, coarse, beautiful creature. End of chapter 11